Please note, this episode carries a content warning for sexual assault. We don't go into detail, but please be aware that it is mentioned in the main interview. Welcome to Exploring Boys Education, a monthly podcast produced by the International Boys Schools Coalition. I'm Bruce Collins. In August 2021, IBSC Member School Brighton Grammar School in Australia hosted a webinar on positive masculinity. In Season 2 of Exploring Boys Education, I was able to interview Brighton Grammar School Headmaster Ross Featherston and Dr. Ray Swan, Head of the Crowther Centre, about the framework they've developed for encouraging positive masculinity. On the M webinar webpage, we're reminded that there's been a lot of talk about toxic masculinity, but there needs to be a conversation about its opposite positive masculinity, and how we help boys to learn healthy behaviours early and develop into good men. Gareth Colson writes, Positive masculinity is when men use their physical and emotional strength to champion healthy behaviours and communities. Positive masculinity is the antithesis of toxic masculinity. The focus of positive masculinity is to help generations of men learn healthy behaviours and then develop more robust communities. Lauren October, a South African journalist, also urges that we need to start the move from toxic masculinity towards a framework of positive masculinity and we need to start now. For only the second time since the launch of Exploring Boys Education, we'll be releasing one episode in two parts. Both parts focused on helping boys to embrace healthy masculinity. In part one, we speak with Gordon Braxton, author, activist, and educator on sexual violence, and former director of men's outreach on sexual violence prevention at Harvard University. In part two, we speak with Craig Wilkinson, founder and CEO of Father a Nation in South Africa. Both parts of this episode are available now. Before I introduce Gordon Braxton, it's always a privilege to have on the microphone IBSC Interim Executive Director Amy Ahart for the IBSC Newsreel. Thank you, Bruce, and hello, listeners. Join us in Dallas for the 2022 IBSC Annual Conference hosted by St. Mark's School of Texas from June 26th through 29th. Let's celebrate gathering in person again and explore the theme, the path to manhood. Get the latest details on the schedule, speakers, workshops, and special events of this invaluable networking and professional development opportunity on the IBSC website. Remember to register by April 27th to save with the early bird discount. We look forward to seeing you in Dallas this June. Now available for download in the IBSC Member Center is the companion to our popular Why a School for Boys brochure and video. This new piece, Boys Schools Understand and Celebrate Boys, is a professionally researched and designed brochure that can be used to communicate the value of a boys' school education to your families and your community. This resource is available exclusively to IBSC members and can be found on our website. Lastly, please visit the professional development page on our website to see what online classes, virtual programs, on-demand classes, and speaker series we have available for you in the months ahead. Bruce, I'm looking forward to both of the conversations in this two-part episode as you discuss helping boys to embrace healthy masculinity with Gordon Braxton and Craig Wilkinson. 
Gordon Braxton is a Division Chief with the Department of Defence and previously served as the Prevention Specialist at Harvard University where he implemented the university's violence prevention policies. Gordon completed his undergraduate work at the University of Virginia and has a master's degree from the Harvard Graduate School of Education. Ebony Magazine identified him as a superman because of his commitment to activism focused on fighting intimate partner violence. He is also the author of Empowering Black Boys to Challenge Rape Culture. Gordon, we're really grateful to you for sharing your insights with us today so that we can move forward in these important conversations many of our schools are having about masculinity. Um, and we really want to help men embrace moral values and principles that strengthen our society and model kindness, tolerance, and empathy. So, Gordon, it's wonderful to have you here. Welcome to Exploring Boys Education. Thank you so much for having me. I am uh, really honored to be in front of your audience here tonight, and thank you for sharing your platform with me. Um, in full disclosure to your audience, my entire educational background was in public co-ed schools. Um, so my experience was a little different than I think a lot of your, your member organizations, but it is a community that I've gotten to know over the years and come to respect and one that I hope I can provide some food for thought to. Well, Gordon, we're really excited to learn from your experience. And, and speaking about that, in the introduction to this episode, I did introduce you, but I'm eager to hear directly from you uh, what work you do with boys also, why you're passionate about the work, and most of all, why this is more important than ever at this moment in time. Yeah, absolutely. Well, my, my quick synopsis is that when I was in college, I was invited to join a all-male peer education program. And this, this education program, it took on the mission of educating other men how to help a sexual assault survivor and ultimately how to prevent sexual violence. And it was all pretty novel to me. Um, I had never heard of such a thing, to be honest. And I, I joined the organization not fully knowing what to expect. I thought it would be just another extracurricular activity. You know, it wasn't the only thing that I was working on at the time. Uh, but this topic got its hooks in me in, in a way that I didn't fully expect. Um, and it was almost immediate that I heard from friends and family that identified as survivors of sexual violence. And I took a, a mission statement from that. You know, if all these people I knew were walking around with these stories and persevering, I asked myself, what is it that I should be doing in return? And of course, I do want to acknowledge that sexual violence can be committed against all genders. But in my experience, I, you know, I took my initial charge and my initial mission from women. Um, so after college, I connected with Katie Kessner, who you had a few episodes ago on your, your fantastic podcast. And I received the wonderful opportunity to talk to many audiences uh, about preventing violence. So these are um, uh, high schools, colleges, military units. Um, and for a while, I worked as a prevention specialist with Harvard University. And I recently wrote a book on empowering Black boys to challenge rape culture. Um, and I focused on that particular audience, not because I don't think that all boys should be included in this conversation, but because there were some particular racial dynamics um, that I didn't want to skirt around or to ignore. I think you're out in um, South Africa, so I think you know you understand as well that there may be some complexities that race introduces sometimes. 
Um, so I didn't want to jump around them. So that's that's why I focus on audience, on that particular audience. But I am a prevention person by training. I like thinking about um, how to create a better world, a, a world uh, without violence. And I know a lot of parents and educators, when we have children, we automatically prepare them for a violent world, right? We start teaching them how to protect themselves, how to uh, defend against violent people that they're going to encounter. I think what we don't often do is think about what does that world have to exist? And I like helping audiences think about what a nonviolent world might look like and how we might get there. And I don't think there's any way forward on that that doesn't involve boys. And there's a particular, I think there's a particular aspect of this that I think would be of interest to your audience in that, to me, thinking about violence prevention was a fantastic window into thinking about masculinity and thinking about manhood. Because when you start to think about, okay, what are the things that I'm doing that may be contributing to violence? And do I have to, do I agree with this particular behavior, this particular attitude? You can't help but ask yourself, well, what else can I change here, right? <laughs> and, to me, and to me, it was just a fabulous window and it led to tremendous growth. And um, I think that um, it will for a lot of boys as well, the same as it was for me. And I think that's the beauty of your particular audience because they already have it in their mission statements to help boys um, think about aspects of masculinity, whether they be for good or whether they be for bad. Um, that's already front and center and part of the conversation that these schools are having. Yeah. I'm so glad that you mentioned Katie Kessner, uh, Gordon, because um, in many ways, as you said, our, our conversation is connected to what Katie and I spoke about two episodes back. And I'm also grateful to Katie for connecting us. And if listeners haven't listened to that episode yet, particularly on 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 the topic of boys and consent, I'd encourage them to to do so. Uh, I'd like to explore first with you, Gordon, what you just mentioned is this no notion of, of masculinity and masculine stereotypes. And, you know, often the masculinity that is modeled to our boys might not help them to discover the good within themselves and recognize its desire to blossom into empathy for others and acts of service. And, you know, as I've read through some of your stuff, you posit that boys sh uh, should know that they have both the right and the ability to decide what kind of men they want to be. And I loved how you put that. And I wondered in your experience with working directly with boys, what are some of the ways we can help boys understand more healthy expressions of masculinity? Yeah, sure. I, I think the biggest thing that one of the biggest things that we can do is simply give them a space to think about these concepts. So often I get a chance when I get chances to talk to um, youth audiences behind closed doors, you know, I might get 45 minutes, an hour or something like that. And it's it's just simply never enough time. <laughs> and quite often uh, educators will walk up to me afterwards and they'll talk about, you know, how surprised they were that how much interactivity it was, how, how involved all the students were in talking to me. Uh, sometimes they even talk about how a particular student that they never hear from had a lot to say, uh, who never raises his voice. And I don't think that this is because of any, you know, unique skill on my part by any means. I, I think that boys just crave opportunities to think about this stuff and they don't generally have a constructive space to do it. Um, 
you know, they have concerns, they have fears, they have desires, and and they, they just need an opportunity to work through it and flesh out who they want to be for themselves rather than just consciously um, saying, okay, this is what a man is supposed to be. And, and, and that's, it, that's an unconscious act a lot of times. And I think there's there's a freedom in, in helping boys realize, oh, I may, I may have a choice in this. I may have a say in this. I, I can talk back to the culture. And, and that was very much my experience. You know, I, I was a sophomore in college before I can recall ever having a single intentional conversation about what society was telling me to do as a man. You know, that was the first time I really consciously reflected on the messages and thought about whether or not I agreed with them, uh, whether or not I wanted to push back, what, what of them, which of them represented me. Um, and the thing is like, I, I consider myself to be very fortunate. I was surrounded by many adults that cared about me. Um, but they just didn't see this as an essential part of my training. And I don't think that I'm alone in this. And I, I think a lot of boys have the same experience. You know, I often share a story with um, students where I talk about how I was in a, in a coma when I was in high school. So I got I got really sick. And so naturally I did what a lot of men would do, which was which was nothing. You know, I didn't I, did, I didn't ask for help. You know, and it wasn't that I was making a conscious decision to waste away. It's just that I was going through the motions of what I thought I needed to do as a man. And, you know, I, I nearly killed myself. And it's it's worth thinking about what are the ways in which we're harming ourselves and what are the ways in which we're harming uh, others. So circling back to your question, I, I'm particularly excited to have this conversation with your audience because what I love about the educational institutions that you represent is that so many of them kind of already are taken on this mission, you know? And when I, when I read their mission statements, when I talk to their educators, um, I think they would describe what they're there to do is, is more than, you know, teach academics and reading, write, writing, and arithmetic and prepare boys for college. I think they would see it as core to what they're supposed to do is raising boys into good men. So whereas some, I think, institutions may have a tougher time figuring out, well, how do we figure, well, how do we fit this into our already busy curriculum? Um, a lot of the schools that you represent kind of already organically understand that this is a part of that, what they're supposed to be doing on a daily basis and may have some goodwill and some capital to have these conversations in the, in, in the space of the school community. Yeah, I love how you speak about um, boys' voices and their willingness to e express themselves in in groups when they are given opportunity to do so and to challenge the the many things that or views of masculinity that might be in a room like that. Um, and I love that you also assert uh, in your work that boys can use use their voices to speak up for what is right and challenge problematic behaviour. I must say, though, that in some contexts these days, we're hearing that boys feel that their voices are muted, um, and even though they want to learn and be better, they're sometimes worried about asking or verbalizing where they're at. And I also know that as you work closely with boys, you might have some insight into what they're thinking and asking in this moment. And I wonder if you'd be willing to share with us some of the insights you've gleaned as you work with boys to prevent sexual violence against women and by extension, the objection and cultural disrespect of women. 
Yeah, definitely. Um, I think one of the first things we need to recognize is that um, the boys in your community, they're, they're already in this, in this fight. <laughs> um, you know, we shouldn't look at this as preparing them for some, some future, uh, some future challenge. And that's my personal observation and one that I think bears out in research as well. Um, you know, historically, we've gotten a lot of our, our data on intimate violence from college communities, um, from incident surveys on a national level, and from criminal justice data. But we're starting to get a lot of research done on secondary schools. And what we're, we're confirming is that quite a few of these, these boys and young men, they already have experiences by the time they get to college. And of course, a lot of sexual violence involving boys um, occurs when they're children, when they're small children. Uh, so I, I just want to first say that 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 we shouldn't look at this as this is something we're preparing them for something down the down the road. They're they're already in it. And even if you think that maybe the boys in your life are sheltered from all this, and it's probably true that most of the boys you know we know statistically speaking, or will neither be a victim or a perpetrator. It's still the case that they interact with a, with a culture every day that produces this violence. Um, they're still going to know friends that are survivors or perpetrators. They're still going to be sitting in a classroom when somebody makes a joke minimizing violence or sitting in a locker room where somebody makes a comment about how real men should or shouldn't be involved with this issue. Uh, so even if they don't have maybe a personal experience, uh, they, they, they're still daily interacting with this culture. And I know sometimes audiences, one of the reasons that they're surprised is like they think their students, maybe because they don't have, um, they're not sexually active or have those experiences that they have nothing to say. But that's, that's far from the case. They, they have a lot to say, <laughs> trust me on that. Um, and as you explored with uh, Katie a couple episodes ago, I can tell you from work with audiences that they have some real challenges often around identifying what violence is in the first place. They have some ideas of consent that don't fully align with uh, the policies of the schools that they're going to in a lot of cases. And I think more importantly, I think they don't align with who they should be striving to be as people. Like sometimes the right thing to do is not just avoiding what, um, might get you in trouble in school or might get you in jail or something. The right thing to do is, is a standard that's well above both of those standards. Um, and, and, and I think boys have trouble seeing that sometimes until you point it out to them, then, then they can see it just fine. But I, I don't want to be entirely negative here. And I do want to um, maybe move to a more positive aspect of this. The other thing I want to point out is that the champions of change, like, they may already be in your community. In fact, they probably are. And I can't tell you how many times I've been having a conversation with a group of young men and watch the whole conversation change just because a single person stood up and, and raised their voice. It could be someone that you know saw their peers not taking the issue seriously enough and they're saying, hey guys, look, this, this is serious. Like I know someone that's been through this. Or it could be um, somebody who stands up and says, well, you know, I, I really have a problem with this, this particular behavior that we do here at this school. Like, I, I really think we could do better than this. Or I have a problem 
with this particular pressure that we put on ourselves or that we put on our peers. And it, it truly is amazing um, to sit back and watch how sometimes just one voice can change the whole conversation. Uh, and it really, it really is quite empowering and really is um, quite strengthening to see that. Um, so while we certainly need to train our boys to do better here, a lot of this is about uncovering the strength that's already there. Um, and, and I don't want us to forget that. It's so important to, to remember that. Gordon, I, I, you know, you, you work with boys and are a positive role model yourself, I'm sure, uh, for the boys who you meet. Um, and in a, often in our schools, we talk about relationship being a key part of a, a boy's journey through um, an all-boys school. And uh, I wondered if we could reflect a little bit on the on the on the the role of positive role models in the lives in the lives of boys. Yeah, I, I think role models are super important. Um, I don't think that's a coincidence that I got really involved as, in this issue until after I was introduced to a group of men that were already um, wrestling with the same things. I, I, I don't think that's a coincidence at all. Like the fact that I met another group of men who could s signal to me that it was okay to, to have these conversations and gave me the social permission to have them. Um, I'm not sure if I would have organically arrived here without them, <laughs> you know, looking back on it. And often when I read biographies from older men, they, they talk about how they wish they had got started on this journey at younger ages, how they wish they started questioning what was told to them at younger ages. Uh, it's amazing how often that comes up. Um, and I absolutely thank that group of young men for, for putting me on that path. I mean, who knows if I would have jumped on it on my own. But um, yeah, I'm a, I'm a little biased because of my background, but I'm obviously a big fan of peer education. When we talk about role models, um, I want to remind everybody that some, sometimes those role models can, can be other students, you know, and I just got done talking about how boys often re can redirect conversations with their peers. Um, I mean, there's a reason that peer education programs are so popular at a lot of educational institutions. I guess the cynic might say that, you know, these are that maybe administrators are outsourcing something that sh that teachers should be doing. <laughs> and maybe there's a there's a shortage of resources, resources or something of that nature. But but I, I think that these programs do work. That That is my personal bias and my personal belief. And we do have to remember that a lot of these programs test quite well. And I take it as a fact that quite often the messenger is, is just as important as the message. And it could be that two people are saying the exact same thing, but it may be heard differently uh, depending on who, who's providing the message. And sometimes a peer can break through where a teacher cannot, or a parent cannot, or a coach cannot. But I think clearly the ideal is that we want boys to have uh, positive role models at all levels. Now, a lot of our contemporary understanding of violence prevention is informed by public health models and socio-ecological models. And th these are models that hold that ideally boys would be receiving anti-violent and, and healthy messaging at all phases and all levels of their life. They would hear these messages when they go to school, when they go home, when they're in the locker room, when they turn on the TV, when they turn on the radio, 
Um, that's that's clearly the idea, the ideal. So yeah, positive role models are essential, whether we are talking about peers, teachers, or or, or celebrities. Um, and I know a lot of times when I talk to parents, that they they quite frankly find this kind of daunting <laughs> to think to think about. Um, having any sort of control over all of the inputs inputs that their children are consuming. Um, but thinking about your audience, I, I, it is worth thinking about that. I think a lot of boys schools do have a, a disproportionate amount of influence over the, uh, the inputs of, the, of their, their students, you know, like particularly boarding schools. <laughs> Um, you, you actually control quite a bit of the messaging, at least compared to the broader population. Um, so I do think that that a lot of times boys' schools have some opportunity to achieve these ideals we're talking about in ways that maybe others educational communities wouldn't be able to do. Such great insights um, there and messages for our for our schools. I know, Gordon, many of our schools want boys to be freer to question, reflect, adjust, and grow, and to ask uncomfortable questions and share ideas without fearing ready judgments, and they try to create the spaces, as you've spoken about, where boys can feel free to share like that. You know, essentially, we want boys to, as you've said, become agents of change. I'm really fascinated to explore this idea with you of boys being upstanders um, instead of bystanders. And so how do we empower boys to understand that healthy masculinity is also about being an upstander in situations um, where they might um, ex experience um, problematic things? Yeah, maybe for the sake of the audience, I'll just go ahead and, and say what, what I think you mean by upstander. But I, I think we're talking about um, individuals in the community that can positively interrupt a negative situation, whether that's a negative a negative value or negative behavior or actual violence in some cases. Um, I think we, we need to start by recognizing that that's a skill set. <laughs> and to, to be honest, it, it's a skill set a lot of adults don't have when we think about it. Um, and I know I certainly don't claim to be above that. I, I I certainly can recall situations that I've been in and I've walked away from like, you know, did I do the right thing there? So this is a, this is a, ta a tangible skill set and we have to take time to teach boys this skill set and we shouldn't expect them to naturally have it. So give them a space to practice the skill. It's, it's one thing to, to see something problematic. It's, it's another thing to know what to do about it. <laughs> And, and know what to do about it in a constructive way, I should say. Um, that takes practice, that takes time, and it takes confidence. Uh, and it also gets easier to do also, I will point out, when you know you have allies in that community that might back you up. So that's why it's so important that communities are providing these spaces because um, boys get so much from that. They get practice, they can think about what they might do in advance, and they can identify where they have allies that might back them up if they share their, their voice. Now, I know from talking to boys that they are often deeply afraid of, of stepping up and saying something. And they don't usually mean it in the sense of, um, I don't think they usually mean it in the sense of uh, fear of a physical reprisal, a fear of their physical safety. I think that's, that's in place sometimes, but more often than not, 
they they mean like social consequences. Um, and you know, all all communities. I know your community, your audience is all over the world, and I can only speak from my perspective in the United States. But yeah, we have pejorative terms that we apply to people that speak up. And I imagine that other communities around the world have their own local language that they use for this. Like boys are afraid of being that person that's taken something too seriously or who's ruining everybody's fun. And to counter this, like, I just want to harken back to pulling out those change agents in your community and identifying them and growing them and empowering them. Because one of the best ways to counteract this sentiment is just to have other people in the community that can speak from experience. You know, a lot of times when people, when boys like think about these scenarios, they're not necessarily talking from experience. Like they, they haven't done it, <laughs> you know? Uh, so it, it means so much with somebody in their community can step up and say, yeah, this thing, I did it. And, and this is how it turned out. Um, and I think, we often think about these things, we only think about the, the negative uh, consequences, but quite often um, when I talk to boys, I would hear stories where they would say, yeah, they, I did this and it, and it turned out fine. And, you know, they might be surprised to see at who comes to stand behind them when they make a stand, or who comes to stand with them, um, or who comes to respect their voice once they share it. And that's not something you're going to get unless you have uh, those people in that space that that can speak to their story, that can pull it out of a hypothetical and can localize a response and tell their community and their peers uh, how it worked out. Um, so we have to think about every boy as a potential change agent that they could be. Yeah. You know, Gordon, you have said that most of us don't spend enough time, and I was really challenged by this, we don't spend enough time interrogating our social training and asserting our own notions of self. Um, and when we do so, many of us realize that all benefit when men approach claims about violent masculinity, not as defense of competence, as we are often expected, but as complete human beings with the courage to accept that there is work to be done. And so I'm wondering what your advice might be for boys' schools, and I know you've shared a lot already, but for boys' schools and leaders in those schools and teachers in those schools to help boys engage in this process of interrogating their social training and, as you've said, courageously participating in the work that needs to be done? Yeah, well, one of the things we definitely want to do is take a step back and recognize where we are um, as a movement. So I, I remember getting into this work 20 years ago, starting to think about the questions you're raising here to, to, tonight. And I, I was voraciously seeking out resources, you know? I wanted stuff to read. I wanted other people to talk to. And it's just been a, a pleasure to watch how much this field has developed, like just in the 20 years since I've been involved. Um, and I have to give a big thank you, thank you to all of the, you know, the pioneering women and men who got the ball rolling on this. But if you are interested in having these conversations with your community, I think the first place I would recommend, if, if you don't know where to go, uh, consider just going on Google and see what pops up. <laughs> um, there are books, uh, there, there are films, there are speakers that you can bring in. 
in some cases, there's entire curricula that's publicly available. So if you don't know where to go, um, you know, that's, that's the beauty of the internet. If you don't have a local resource, you can probably reach out and touch a resource that's already done a lot of the work that you're trying to do with the community. So beyond this, I just want to echo the need to believe in the boys in your community. Um, you know, I'm, I'm largely here right now talking to you right now, Bruce, because educators took the time to identify me. You know, I probably wouldn't be here otherwise. Uh, they took the time to, they picked my voice, you know, amongst the campus and said, we want you to help. They took the time to train me. Um, they took the time to, to empower me. Uh, and then they sent me out in the world to do some good. And I, I wouldn't be here without them. Now, I mean, I guess as a word of caution for your audience, like we, we can't look at this work as a one-time event, right? You're not gonna be able to hold an assembly uh, and wash your hands of this because we're in, we're in the business of culture change and that takes time and it takes uh, intense effort and you need to be prepared uh, to support the boys in your community, to train them uh, when they do step up. And you probably also need to make sure that the adults in your community are engaged in the same conversations. Um, we talked about um, having role models at all levels and you, you could have some actors in there that are completely counteracting that you're not aware of. Um, so this is, this is, this is long-term intensive work and there's not a, there's no one-time solution that you're going to be able to apply to it. Um, but, and I will say this maybe, maybe in closing, Bruce, like, um, you know, I've been doing, I've been speaking in one form or another for about 20 years, speaking to friends, <laughs> speaking to anyone that would hear me sometimes. Um, and the, the truth and, you know, I'm not, I haven't always said the right things, you know, and I get I get better every time I go out. And over time, I've gotten better. And boys shouldn't be afraid to make mistakes. Um, you know, if they make a mistake with someone that truly matters to them, they're going to be able to come back <laughs> and revisit that conversation. I, I can't tell you how many times I had conversations with people that maybe initially didn't go well, but then they came back once and years later. And they said, you know, I, I see what you're saying. And truth be told, like if I were to, to talk to a man that was openly violent and unrepentant and just didn't care about it, I, I would struggle to talk to a person like that, to be honest. I don't, I don't know that I would know what to say to them. But my conversation and where I think our focus needs to be is not so much talking to them. It's talking to the other men around them, the other men that would help and just need to be invited. Um, so what we have to do is isolate those violent men, make sure that they understand that they don't represent their community. And uh, throughout all of history, like these men have largely been able to blend in just fine. Uh, but I'm confident that a rising generation of boys can help us turn that around. And I, I really don't see any viable forward, any viable path forward without involving them. So, as, so I just wanted to say thank you so much for, for giving me a few minutes night to, tonight to put this challenge out there <laughs> to your audience. Um, there's no path forward on this issue, I think, that don't involve our boys. And we have to be um, ready to recognize them as change agents and ready to support them um, once they do say that they're ready to step up. 
Gordon, I think you've ended on such a hopeful note. Um, and, uh, you know, I think many of our schools would say that it is all about the boys. And I think you've given us um, so many things to think about. Um, and particularly um, what stands out for me is the whole idea of boys being change agents and providing opportunities for for them to to discover that they can be that. Before we close, though, Gordon, I want to ask you just quickly to share, you know, if people are interested in engaging more with you, what's the best way to get hold of you? What resources might you have? Um, and, and yeah, how can they, how can they engage with more with your work if they would like to? Yeah, well, I really need to, to do a better job with that. So and in, in, as it comes to reaching boys where they are, like this uh, venturing into the social media space, <laughs> It has been an adventure for me, speaking of, of li lifetime learning and growth. Um, so, yeah, I'm trying to move there more. But uh, on Twitter, um, you can just find me at Gordon Braxton. Um, like I said, I, I just recently published a book that's on um, empowering black boys to challenge rape culture. That's the title of the book. Um, like it's, it's, again, aimed particularly at African-American communities, but I think that or I hope that everyone would be able to take something from it. If you do have boys in your life that you want to have difficult, but necessary conversations with the, with them. Um, so that's where I'm kind of moving my, my platform to at the moment. Um, so I'm also online at empoweringblackboys.com. Um, but yeah, feel free to reach out to me on Twitter. I'm trying to do a better job and involve in that space and Facebook as well. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Gordon, thank you for being with us and for sharing your insights. I know that what you've shared is going to have impact across the world as leaders and teachers um, in boys' schools listen to what you have shared. I know we have some parents who tune into this podcast too, so I'm hoping that it will give them some insight too into what their sons might be thinking and going through. But uh, thank you so much for making the time to have this conversation with, with me today and for sharing so authentically, specifically for our audience. I've really appreciated your willingness to do that. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. This is just a reminder that part two of this episode on helping boys to embrace healthy masculinity is also available now. In it, we speak with Craig Wilkinson, founder and CEO of Father and Nation in South Africa. He was also a keynote speaker at the IBSC virtual conference in 2021. In the second part, Craig shares the six virtues of true masculinity. <laughs>